1: It's not today's price. Welcome back to another episode of the Run the Numbers podcast. I am privileged to be here with the prince, the king of pricing, Kyle Poyer. Thanks for joining me, man.
0: (laughs) Good to see you, CJ.
1: Before we get in, I got to ask you, who's your favorite OpenView portfolio company and why is it PartsTech?
0: I mean, it's absolutely Parts Tech. I I think I have to say that uh, legally to be on this podcast.
1: I have to commend you. So there are a lot of VCs out there that the meme is that they're being helpful, but they're really just kind of like hanging out. You are the most helpful of all the VCs I know. You've helped me with our pricing at PartsTech, and uh, I can always come to you with questions. And I'm glad to bring this podcast to people because, you know, there are... There's some podcasts that like stay pretty, you know, shallow and go all over the place with a guest. I want to go deep specifically on pricing today. And to start out, I'll be the guy to ask the dumb question. Um, I was really bad at econ one-on-one. Can you just explain, explain to me what price elasticity actually means?
0: Yeah, uh, although it's funny, it's I feel like it's talked about more than it's actually measured, uh, especially in SAS. So price elasticity, you think of it as like mapping out, uh, you know, price on one axis and demand for the products on the other axis. And, you know, in theory, as the price goes up, demand goes down, right? Like people would buy your product less, uh, but there's fascinating differences across products. So in a commodity product, the price is pretty fixed. And if you are, uh, if you try to increase your price, pretty much no one will buy because they can get the exact same thing for cheaper. Uh, in a luxury good, there's not a lot of price elasticity. Uh, so you can raise your products and few people would stop buying. And in fact, in some cases for luxury products, more people buy because it's a status symbol. And so we look at that slope of that curve and normally there's some interesting points from a kind of pricing standpoint where you can find areas of the curve that are inelastic which means there's opportunities to raise price but then ceilings where once you go over that ceiling you're going to be in a really bad position because you've kind of gone beyond what people can budget for what they think is fair and so uh the the Price elasticity curve isn't like that straight line that you might see in an Econ 101 textbook. It actually uh, varies a lot. And so it's really important to figure out exactly where's the right point to be on that curve.
1: So like a Birkin handbag or a Rolex watch, what, what's the elasticity on that?
0: Very low uh, and potentially even negative elasticity.
1: Got it. AWS hosting, what's the elasticity on that? Is that like a commodity then? I would think of that as... Commoditize
0: because you can get such similar products from you know, GCP and Azure, Yeah. but it actually it's probably different depending on the customer's adoption curve. When someone's making the initial decision, maybe they're a startup and they're really cash strapped, it's probably hard for them to afford spending a lot of money on compute. Uh, and so you probably really need to be competitive on price in the beginning. Once someone's locked in and their usage is growing, they're probably not paying as much attention to their bill until they end up like having their CFO call them. Why are we spending millions of dollars on AWS? And so I think that there's, there's uh, changes that happen over the life cycle of a customer.
1: Got it. I don't want to toot my own horn, but I did pass level one of the CFA exam <clears throat> on the second try, but, uh, <laughs> Veble- Vebling good. Isn't that a, isn't that a term? Uh, I think so.
0: I don't even know what that is.
1: Yeah, me either. All right. That's why it took me two tries to pass it. All right. Next question here. I want (laughs) to get into psychology and price hacks. So we've all heard that charging, I'll just throw it out there, like 99.99 rather than a hundred dollars or 9.99 versus $10 is, is better. Does that actually make a difference or is that just dumb?
0: Yeah, I, I'm skeptical about it, to be honest. I think there's some cases in consumer products where, uh, that does work you know in theory it makes something look like it's a deal because it's you know not exactly ten dollars it's like it's already discounted or something or looks like it's discounted and the idea is that you're able to stay right under like a psychological threshold in someone's mind so if someone thinks hey i'm never going to spend more than a hundred dollars on this uh but it's 99 dollars no, actually, you know that's reasonable, and so like in in some ways you kind of want to be right up against that threshold where price elasticity goes up, and you know what better place to be than like ninety nine ninety nine, uh, but for B two B products I don't see a whole lot of value in that uh, it and it's. I think it's it's different for a B2C product where there's a lot of emotion and, and psychology that goes into it. In B2B products, it's more of a thoughtful buying process uh, that's more around like, is this product budgeted for? Is pricing simple? Is it predictable? Like there's different calculations that go into buying products than in a consumer mindset. And so I haven't seen a whole lot of impact on B2B products that have tested these kind of charm pricing versus just
1: more simplified pricing. It kind of reminds me of a conversation that I had with Ethan Schechter, VP of sales at sneak. And he was saying that CFOs look at discounting, like it's a terrible thing to do, but he's, he was saying, if you price it with the anticipation of having some discounting in there, like customers love to feel like they got a win. You want the other person across the table from you to feel like, you know, they're, they're getting a victory. Do you agree with that? Like, I guess, thematically when it comes to discounting?
0: It's a good question. I think it's different for PLG products versus for like a sales led or negotiated product. In a PLG model, people look for transparency. So they want to know what the price is going to be before they sign up and use the product. And then if they think that price was fair, they're going to start using it. And then they kind of already have made an adoption decision in their mind before they put their credit card down. And it's just a matter of Am I seeing value? If so, I'll, I'll start buying it. If not, I won't, um, in a sales led negotiated model, there's a lot of risk involved, right? Like you have to go to your internal stakeholders and fight for budget approval. You have to convince the CFO like you that it's worth spending money on, uh, you're putting your neck out there. If the product doesn't work because it's your reputation on the line, and so being able to have a win where you can say to your CFO, hey, this is already negotiated. We got 30% off. You don't need to negotiate this further. Uh, looks like it's you know, someone doing a really good job at work when really it's just part of a vendor strategy to bake in some standard, standard discount for everyone. And so I think in this sales led, very negotiated pricing model, uh, some element of pre-discounting works pretty well. I, and you know in, in many cases this isn't really a discount so like you might have a volume discount model for your usage or your seat based pricing where once someone buys 50 seats they get 20% off 100 seats it's 25% off whatever it is and many of these companies that have these volume discount models just show what the discounted price is they don't put that in context of what's the list price and so it goes to procurement and procurement thinks it's not they're not getting any sort of value for this volume. And so I do think it's a, you know, a relatively simple thing just about everyone can do. If you have a volume discount baked in, show it in your proposal that you're already offering the customer a discount.
1: Can you say more about the transparency piece, especially with PLG?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, with, with PLG products, generally speaking, people are going to your website before they sign up and start using your product. And you're often starting with relatively low intent users. These are people that are maybe uh, individuals or managers, right? The people that are going to be using your product rather than buying your product. And so what these people need to, need to be comfortable with is, Hey, does this product solve the problem that I'm, you know, looking to solve? Uh, is it relatively affordable, affordable for me, especially to start using it? You know, you could make the case later about a a bigger rollout, but to start using it, generally, you're looking for some sort of free offering, a free product, a free trial, or a relatively lightweight entry path. And then you also want to make sure there's not going to be some shock expense that, you know, when you sign up and, and and start buying it, you think it's $10 and it's actually a thousand dollars. And then you look like an idiot internally. And so I think some level of transparency just builds trust. and and confidence in starting the product and like putting in the real work to see value in it uh because folks hate that bait and switch
1: I think that's so true that it builds trust and it's if you have to haggle over something it actually even though you may end up feeling like you got a victory and you can go back to your boss and say hey look look how much I got off I'm, I'm awesome I'm the man it's a friction point to start really like it may cause a delay or even derail the deal totally
0: Yeah, and a lot of people don't even realize they can negotiate these things. So if they just see the initial headline price and are like, that's not what I budgeted for, or they see something cheaper online, uh, they might not take the next step in in the conversation. Although with many products that are enterprise products, There's just no pricing transparency in general and so you're not really at risk because like you're the same as every vendor what i'm fascinated by is with the rise of folks like vendor they're making pricing more transparent across kind of traditional software products that would that wouldn't have that transparency where customers are looking to that type of product as a way to uh, see are they getting a good deal are they getting a fair price for what they're buying and are they even looking at the right vendors in the first place And so what I'm going to be fascinated by is as solutions like vendor take off, does that actually change the calculus for software companies around transparent pricing? And in some ways you actually might have to rein in negotiations because uh, otherwise your negotiated price with one customer might come back to haunt you with everyone else. And you might want to just take control of the narrative around your pricing so that it's not, uh, in the hands of, of a third party, but you can control all of the positioning and the, and the pricing conversations. And people are looking to you as the, as the source of that information rather than a third party like vendor.
1: Yeah. I'm also a big fan of Tropic. They're actually one of the, uh, sponsors of the pod shout out Tropic. And what's cool about the service they provide is it also kills off a lot of RFPs that I used to literally bang my head against the wall filling out. And now, they kind of cut through the noise and they're also a discovery function for what best in class products you may want to use. So a CFO, like me, I may see like an advertisement for, you know, a product, but I want to go to my network and validate that other CFOs are using. it. It's kind of like the old adage, like no one ever got fired for buying IBM. Tropic can help me figure out how many other CFOs have bought this, like in their customer base. Within the last 30 days, 60 days to help me validate that I'm not making a dumb decision. And then they have the data on the negotiation, like you said. Because if you if you if you think about it, like you only negotiate for this product once a year, they probably negotiate for that product hundreds of times a year. So it levels the playing field in terms of one side having asymmetrical information.
0: Totally. Totally. But that creates risk, right? So if you start having negotiated pricing or give your sales reps a lot of flexibility uh that might have worked okay if uh none of the buyers had the same information and people were just you know having these conversations once a year when buyers have access to what happens across hundreds of deals all of a sudden that big discount starts looking like the expectation where it's like why don't I get that um and so it starts to change the game a little bit I think puts more uh, power in the hands of buyers rather than sellers and then forces sellers to adopt different behaviors.
1: I'm in the auto industry and I also, uh, am the proud owner of a used car. Uh, listeners of the podcast probably heard that whole saga, but it's funny in the car industry because all the discovery has gone to online, basically the price is the price. There's very little room to haggle once you get in there and some, used car dealerships, like a CarMax have gone the extra step to just say, like, there's literally no discounting, like the price is the price. And they're actually making the bulk of their money on the F and I. So the financing insurance after the fact, so they've shifted their business model to be like, let's try to bake in this fat, this, this, this fat uplift on the car after we bring it in and refurb it. And then instead make our nut on, you know, selling something that's a high interest rate product over time. So it's just fascinating how yeah. some industries are actually shifting away from like, let's just take the negotiation out entirely.
0: Yeah, it's definitely changed the game. And my dad actually uh owned a used car business. And so oh, nice. it's things have changed since his uh wheeling and dealing days pre- you know, the auto trader, cars.com, car gurus yeah. and and all that. Uh although they still made a lot of money on financing. What I find interesting though on the new car side is that there's still some room for negotiation. I mean, it tends to be more around financing options or around uh, like some of the extra bells and whistles. So almost every car these days, you know, you're not just buying a car. The car is sort of the base model. It's like the good package. And then you can upgrade to, hey, do you want to go from zero to 60 in three seconds? Oh, that's an add-on fee? Uh, do you want leather seats? Do you want whatever like the, the different add-ons are, which are different from every car? And there's some, I think, room for negotiation with those add-ons. And it makes the customer feel like they're getting a good deal. But really, you're actually not dropping the price. You're just giving it some more value for free. And there's some, uh, I think, tips for software companies in that type of model too, where you could look at things like charging for onboarding which it's not recurring revenue, not super valuable for you. You want to invest in your customer's success. And so uh, do you have things like paid onboarding that you can then waive in a deal for negotiation rather than dropping the, the price of the actual
1: recurring software itself? Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Yeah. There's a lot of data that we buy in our business. And there's usually this platform fee that's always in there like $10,000. And then after that, it's a usage based thing, but it's this fixed amount every year and that's what i always try to go after in the negotiation first try to get that wiped
0: yeah like what's included in this platform fee <laughs> I,
1: I always wonder that <laughs> what, what what are you providing or like it, i mean recruiting firms do it too like if you wanted to open a, a rec for like a like a, a high priority hire they'll be like it's one third of the person's first year salary but then there's a five thousand dollar admin fee and then when you look at it and you add in the admin fee, it's like, oh, so this fee is actually closer to 40%. You're just slipping that in at the end. And in my mind, I don't perceive that $5,000 as part of the percent. That's just a flat fee.
0: Yep, absolutely. Uh, that, this is what's fun about pricing, right? And the psychology of pricing is that every time there's a change in buying behavior, people respond with some creative pricing tactics. If on the recruiting space, uh, that one third of salary is such a known thing in the industry. And it's really hard to change from, uh, that point. Like how, where else are you going to monetize? Uh, and so it, it's just a fascinating space. And that's why I love working on pricing with our portfolio companies. Is there so much like flexibility and creativity, especially for digital products where costs are relatively low. Like a lot of the costs in a software business are around sales and marketing, um, or around building new products as opposed to servicing the existing product. And so uh, that essentially means if, if you have low marginal costs, you have a ton of flexibility around how you charge and how much you charge while yeah. still making a profit.
1: That, that uh, by the way, for everyone listening, Walter just joined the pod. He came up for a treat, so sorry about that. Welcome, Walter. Yeah, he's our, he's our official mascot. Me and him went through the show notes together before we started, he had some, Hard-hitting questions about uh, free stuff, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, i surprised you didn't we, blame before...
0: the uh, price elasticity question on him.
1: Yeah, exactly. I, I knew what it was. He, he didn't. <laughs> I was just taking one for the team, playing stupid. Um, I, okay, so Mark Andreessen, another uh, VC out there being helpful. He has this famous advice to start up The Techno Optimist VC. The Techno Optimist. Yes. Yeah, shout out to Techno Optimist. The manifesto. I don't know if the word manifesto is like a good thing to say now either. Like, uh, is that a negative word? I don't think Manif- it was ever a
0: good thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> you don't I hear don't know many, why. That... like favorable manifestos
1: out there. <laughs> yeah, there, are, there, aren't many, <laughs> there aren't many manifestos that have aged well. Um, but what he said was, quote unquote, raise your prices. Get, Price increases. Do you tell all your portfolio companies to do that? If you're not raising your prices every year, are you just leaving money on the table? Can you break that down for me?
0: I do give this advice like relatively frequently. And the the rationale there, it, it actually varies a lot depending on the stage of a company. For early stage businesses, especially like pre-seed and seed funded companies, you start off, you don't want anything to get in the way of getting early customers to try your product, use it, give you feedback, you end up with a pretty broad customer profile or customer base from those early customers. What you also sold in the early days is so different from what where you end up six months or a year later, because you are shipping at such velocity. And so if you're that early stage, fast moving company, the value you're offering changes so fast, if you're not adjusting pricing every six to 12 months, then you're leaving a lot of money on the table, generally speaking. And that's especially true, like, I mean, you could look at it from a pure product standpoint, but in many cases, it's just, you're going after a customer profile that is a much better fit for your product and sees a lot more value in it. And you have more proof points in how your product works. And so you're more confident in being able to talk through the economic value and the ROI for your customers. And that's a value itself. Like, right. It doesn't have to all just be about product features, but it's more about the customer's perception of value rather than like any sort of like, uh mythical value that's just sort of embedded in what you've built and so for early stage companies i do find a lot of opportunity there Um, the other thing is that these price increases are relatively low risk because at that stage most of your revenue growth comes from customers you don't have right people that are still out there to discover you and for these folks a price increase isn't actually a price increase it's just how your pricing works and so there's no risk of backlash because they don't have uh, a budget that they've already gotten approved. They don't feel like you know there's um, they don't feel uh like there was a bait and switch involved. It's just how your pricing works, and it's either fair or not fair. Now, that's it. I do tend to see companies uh at the later stage points uh so companies that are maybe approaching iPO or post iPO sometimes those companies raise prices and it feels very disconnected from value. And it feels like just a push for profitability. Like anytime a private equity firm buys a software company, one of the first things they do is raise prices.
1: Vista equity comes in day three, they're increasing prices by 5%.
0: One of the playbooks of PE firms is to actually operate businesses where I believe it's on a rule of rule of nine, I could be getting the number wrong. But the concept is the annual price increase plus the number of years on a contract should be as close to nine as possible. And so you should either be doing like a 6% price increase with three year deals or 7% price increase with two year deals. You know, you get the, you get the point, uh, but that's sort of part of their playbook because they buy sticky products that are hard to rip out and then both lock customers in and, raise the prices over time. And that, that model, you know, it works in the short term, uh, but if it's not paired with a really significant increase in value over time, customers get really unhappy with it and it opens the door for new entrants to come in and take market share, uh, especially new entrants that have more of like a PLG approach and, uh, and have a just different way of, of, uh, of selling. For the average SaaS startup out there or just tech startup in general, that is relatively early stage, let's call it sub five, sub 10 million ARR, there's a lot of opportunity to raise price. And that window starts to narrow the larger you get. And so you wanna either do it less frequently or just make sure that you are more buttoned up before you make that kind of change.
1: Yeah, I recently had an experience like this where I work and we were taking, you know, our plan and taking out one of the features and making that a standalone module that you could buy for X dollars. And so what someone originally said is, well, well, now we got to lower the price on that original package because it's not as, you know, attractive anymore to the people on it. And my initial reaction was, well, we can grandfather in the original people and uh, give them like a better price on that. But like, We got to remember that 99.9% of the market doesn't actually own this product yet so to them it's not like we're making it worse this is just the new reality of what they're going to anchor to
0: yeah absolutely and if you know you also might look at your install base and see only 25% of them actually use the feature in the first place and so most people would have been comfortable buying without that feature included
1: yeah so For everyone out there, raise your prices. But I do have to admit, it does seem like a a standard lever in the playbook. Like we're about to go public, so we're going to do a price increase across the board. Like that seems like a very common thing to do for later stage firms.
0: To be clear for folks, it does work in terms of, uh, if you look at the revenue growth impacts of pricing changes, and even more importantly, the profitability growth impact of price increases, uh, what I tend to find is that, for, pro- for companies that are innovating and offering a good amount of value to their customers, if you raise prices by anywhere from five to 20%, there tends to be relatively low incremental churn as a result. Uh, especially if you handle the situation uh, the right way with your customers, it tends to be fairly low churn and a good amount of upside. And so if you think about all the things that you can do to grow 10, 15% faster, there's not a whole lot that don't require incremental headcount, don't require spending more on sales and marketing, right? Like uh, that actually might lower your CAC payback because now you're able to sell at a higher price and and recoup the cost of acquisition faster. And so uh, if pricing increases or just the pricing lever in general, isn't on your roadmap as a CFO listening or as just an operator in a startup, you should explore that because that's something that, you, you know, you might not have a head of pricing. You might not have someone who wakes up every day and thinks about pricing as a lever for your business. And so that role could be you and it, you could have a big impact on the business.
1: You know, who actually did this was Instacart. So if you dug into their P and L on the S one and you compared their revenue growth to the order growth, the order growth year over year was pretty much flat, like 70% or so of the 30% growth that they were seeing in top line was actually from increasing their take rate on products that were sold. So take, I'm equating take rate to pricing in this scenario, but basically what they were doing is trying to squeeze as much water or blood out of the rock as they could. And I don't know if that can go on forever. Yeah. And you
0: see it with a lot of companies I mean, digital ocean raised prices. I think it was by about 15%. They talked in one of their earnings calls right after the, Tens of millions of dollars that made an incremental profit. Shopify had a pretty big price increase lately. Airtable did, Notion did. Uh, when GitLab was going public, they actually used to have a four-dollar per user tier, and they just killed that tier. And so the customers had to actually go and spend $19 a month instead of $4 per user per month. And they did have a legacy migration plan where you stair step from like four to seven to like Eleven and so on, and like the price increased over time uh but it's a pretty common uh play in the in the i p o playbook
1: Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. You know a public company where they don't increase the price Costco the hot dog's still a buck fifty Kyle <laughs> 50.
0: <laughs> gotta love Costco, maybe if they were a SaAS company, they'd be different. <laughs> <laughs>
1: They would raise the price of the hot dog by 5% every year. Uh, So we talked about stuff that does cost money. Let's talk about stuff that doesn't cost money yet. So free trials versus freemium. Can you explain why those aren't the same thing?
0: Uh, Yeah. I mean, they're not that different of concepts, right? But uh, in general, you think about like free products, you're offering a taste of your product uh rich there's a penny gap phenomenon in price elasticity where as soon as you charge even a penny for something the number of people that try it goes down substantially and so there's actually the most price elasticity between zero and a penny and so for SaaS companies it's a it's a great acquisition opportunity to lower that entry barrier to zero get people to try the product, get them hooked on it, right? Get it integrated with their systems, their workflow, shared with their teams. And then, you know, hopefully they fall in love with it and decide to buy it. So in, in theory, it can equate to a really great growth model uh, that brings in more acquisition, efficiently kind of uses the product as part of the sales motion, and then still has a monetization play. And, but if you look at the difference between freemium versus free trial, it's more of like what you gate. So you're always wondering what do you offer for free and what do you kind of hold back and make people have to pay for in order to use and a free trial, you're usually putting kind of your best foot forward with the customer, offering a really generous edition of the product, maybe even access to premium support, but for a time limited window, like you've got 14 days and that's usually the time limit, uh, 14 days to use this. What's great about that is like, you're showing off the best of what you can do. Uh, it's also really clear, like when someone needs to take out their credit card and buy, uh, and it creates urgency for people to actually like use the product because in that 14 day window, or they're not gonna be able to do it again. And that urgency might drive even more kind of usage and value realization. The challenges though, are that, uh, with a free trial, you tend to actually constrain top of funnel a bit. So your sign-up rate of prospective users goes down relative to a freemium product. Uh, it's also, uh, in my experience, it's something that, uh, you know, if you, it, it depends on your, your product kind of like value delivery for your customers. So for some products, it might take more than two weeks for someone to see value. And so if your product increases in value over time, like if you think about a slack, uh, your product actually needs not just one person to use it, but that one person to invite their team, that team to invite other people you to have actual like important data on Slack. And so Slack just did a 14 day trial. Their conversion wouldn't look that great because people hadn't, wouldn't have realized enough value in that 14 day period. And so that's where freemium models tend to work well. If you really want to grow that, you know, top of funnel because you're going to bring more people in. And so if your product has like virality effects or just benefits from having more people on it, you might value that. Uh, and it works for products where the value discovery just takes a little longer, but we're talking about more of like two tactics towards the same goal. And it's, we get into a lot of like almost religious arguments about freemium versus free trial. And I think of it as like, it's more about what's best for your product and growth motion. And there's actually a lot of like hybrids in between that people don't think about. So like one thing that I like is a usage limited freemium product where you have a usage paywall. It's like the classic New York Times model, right, where it's like you can read 10 articles and then you have to pay. Uh I read exactly fl-
1: 9 every month.
0: <laughs> All right, you should upgrade. If you can afford tens of thousands of dollars on, you know, that software costs you can spend like $15 a month on New York t- the New York Times, but uh There's a lot of there's a lot of these like hybrid models out there and I and I think that the like debate on freemium versus free trial ignores all the complexity and the interesting variations embedded within those two.
1: Well, one of the variations within free trials, if you have to put a credit card down, right? Yep. I struggle with that one, if that's the right way to go, because it's technically another point of friction, right?
0: It's definitely a point of friction where I see people doing it. uh, Well, for what it's worth for folks, the companies that that do it, um, it's often companies that have a stronger brand recognition, or they have some sensitive data with uh, the product sort of operate around and they're, it's a way to help them stop fraud around it. Uh, and, and it creates, uh, I guess, a, a more serious, like high intent funnel to work with. And so it, it screens out a lot of the noise in the funnel. And I tend to find while there is more friction in signing up for a credit card gated free trial, the free to paid conversion of those signups is like through the roof. And so if you actually credit card gate your product in the first month, you'll make more revenue than you would if you didn't do that for the average, like SaaS product. The challenge is you end up actually with a lot of people buying the product, not because they've seen value in it or like opted to buy it, but because, uh, their credit card was charged and they forgot to cancel. And so you end up getting a lot of requests for refunds and really high churn in month two, three, four, and so on. Uh, and so it's not, in my experience, it's not the best customer experience. And the LTV is generally, um, either neutral or a little unfavorable with these credit card gated trials. And for SaaS companies, especially companies that have some sort of like PLG motion, you're typically like not as focused on the month one spend of a customer. You're, you're focused on like the LTV of that customer and ideally it grows like linearly or exponentially over time as customers invite their team and deepen their usage. And so that's why I optimize for LTV of cohorts rather than like initial
1: spend. I, at a micro level, I had a similar experience around this, right? So Substack allows you to do a seven day free trial and the person has to put it in their credit card. And so I did it for one week and a bunch of people converted. But then in the next month, I got a bunch of churn from it and it scared the shit out of me. And I think that was because it probably charged a bunch of people that forgot they put their credit card in and they saw the charge and were like, yeah, I read as much as I possibly could. Now I'm out.
0: Yeah. And it might have even like put a bad taste in their mouth where they like even unsubscribe in general, which you'd hate.
1: Yeah. So I I pulled it back. I I stopped doing that. Um, Because to your point, I feel like I want to maximize the lifetime value of someone. And either you want what I'm writing about or you don't. And you want to stick around and see what the next thing I'm going to write is. The related question to this is like, you know, PLG, free and free trial. I feel like a lot of people are starting to think these are synonymous when they're really not. Do you have to have you think some flavor of either free or free trial to be PLG? Or is it just that they're related because one greases the skids for the other.
0: Yeah, they're I mean, they're very related, but it's not uh it's both like not necessary to be PLG and it's not sufficient to be PLG. And so, when I think about like PLG, we actually have we've mapped out 11 characteristics that we see in the best PLG companies. And we didn't actually say like freemium or free trial is one of the characteristics, but we did frame it as deliver value before we, before you monetize or like specifically deliver product value. And so that could be in the form of a free sidecar product. That's a hook into your core product. Like sneak is known for really amazing sidecar products with like the vulnerability database and things like that. Uh, you could also have an interactive product demo that really shows off what, what folks can do in the product. It's sort of, um, this sort of m- more mentality around delivering product value. But like in general, if I zoom out product led growth is about using the product as part of the growth motion, right? So help using the product as a way to acquire, convert, expand and retain your customers. And the idea is that it's by definition, a, a, like a dimmer switch rather than an on or off switch. You're looking for ways to take things that would usually be done manually by people whether that's like BDRs, cold calling people, sales reps involved in really lengthy conversations uh, and negotiations with customers, onboarding reps, you know, having to do manual onboarding with folks. You're taking these things that would usually be done in a highly manual a manual way, it's creating a lot of friction and you're turning into product experience that should improve the customer experience and also ideally improve efficiency. And so if you're doing PLG tactics, but not creating more efficiency in the funnel or just better growth, then you're not really doing product-led growth in a way that's actually impactful for the business. Yeah. And so I look at, for example, um, on freemium and free trial, I look at a metric called product influence revenue, and that's how much of your net new revenue started with a meaningful product interaction before they ever talked to sales. And for our, in our new benchmarks data, which comes out very soon for freemium products, the range of like top quartile, to bottom quartile was 28 percent to 100 percent of their revenue was product influenced and so like just offering a freemium product was like not nearly enough to actually be seeing value in freemium as part of like creating product influence revenue right and so it's, it's we have to hold plg to a higher bar and we also have to sort of like create more innovative and and bespoke plg approaches for specific businesses like we could be looking at in-app trials for existing customers. That's a PLG strategy, even if you don't have a freemium offer, right? There's a lot of interesting things you
1: can do. I love that. I remember Ben Williams, when we were working together at Sneak and we were working on an ltv to CAC project together, he had explained the product-influenced revenue to me and it blew my mind at the time. And now like, once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's like, was there some sort of value, uh, you know, was there some sort of value that was realized from the customer before they went on to purchase and it's a it's a cool thing to track
0: totally and i've i i I've had portfolio companies that I've worked with that have had freemium editions and then sales reps are essentially out, going outbound into folks not looking at data on you know who's using the product what they're doing at all, and having just a totally separate sales conversation and in those cases, there's sort of like almost no product influence revenue where it's like someone really has to be banged down your door of like, hey, I'm really ready to buy this. Will someone please talk to me from sales? And uh, there's cases where it's like, just because some, a business looks BLG because of their website, doesn't mean that's how they operate uh, behind the scenes.
1: I, this is one of the reasons why this podcast is so great selfishly for me. So I just wrote down on a piece of paper using data uh, while using the product to do lead scoring. So I'm gonna ask the BI team, at parts tech to look into that after because there have been some like search related things and some like velocity of ordering that we can look into before we go after and try to sell them SaaS. so it's like how do you use that to filter out who's the best candidate to go after like who's getting the most value out of this and would probably want to get more value so thank you for that
0: well you should both do that so that's like step one is getting the data step two is actually crafting a personalized message based on the different types of data that you'll see so if someone is hitting certain thresholds on usage, that might correspond with certain features in your premium offer that are gonna be really attractive to them because that's you know, tied to what they're actually doing in PartStack. And so it'll feel uh, like a really personalized offer, even though it's just like automated using data
1: what's cool about that is you can make it still self-serve by giving them that messaging in the product rather than like, cause I was thinking about it before. Like, do we have somebody call up like an inside sales rep and try to upsell them on something? But you're saying you can actually craft the message based on the data within the product to allow them to put down a credit card for it.
0: Yeah. You can do it in the product or, I mean, people will also send it over email and I tend to like the email to come like from their sales rep, like from the person that they're working with. Right. And so it looks very personalized to the recipient, but it's actually like an automated email uh, that's trigger based.
1: All right, Kyle. So we're going to move into what we like to call our long ass lightning round. So if you could tell your younger self something, knowing what you know today, what would you tell them?
0: Yeah, that's a, it's a tough question to me. My younger self uh, thought I knew a lot I mean, I thought I was hot shit, right? Um, and you couldn't tell me that I was wrong. <laughs> I think that I, uh, I, mis- I uh, made the mistake that's, I think, fairly common among other f- folks, that like, I just didn't know what I didn't know, and I was too myopic in my thinking. And so the like advice for myself would be optimizing for learning Uh, to just constantly get exposure to things that are outside of my wheelhouse and then surround myself with people that would give me more direct feedback and like call me out. Right. Um, if I didn't know something, like I, I just, uh, I think that that more like the relationships I have with people who are candid, direct and like provide in the moment feedback, like that's so valuable for building a career and, uh you have to seek those people out because people don't just do that out of the goodness of their heart. Like they're going out on a limb to do it. If someone's not going to receive it very well. And so you have to be intentional.
1: The looking for feedback and being receptive to it is huge. I agree in the beginning part of my career, I think if someone gave me feedback actually, which is like kind of a gift, like I would crumble, I would be like, they hate me. I, I just like, wasn't, I wasn't good at synthesizing it and I would take offense to it. And now I'm like, Oh, they, are taking time out because they want me to get better at something.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And that, the like compliment sandwich style of feedback, <laughs> uh, like that felt really great in the moment because it was like, oh, I'm doing all these great things and oh, there's just this like small thing that I could improve. That is so unhelpful. At least oh, for yeah. me, it was so unhelpful because it made me not actually like take the do the work to improve on what I needed to improve. improve. Uh, and so, i now value just like get get to the point tell me tell me
1: straight totally compliment sandwich man i would only eat the bread (laughs) (laughs) that is the tastiest part of a sandwich all right uh one more for you roll the theme music producer nancy and with that it's time to rep your stack sponsored by tropic The next-gen procurement platform helping modern CFOs take control of their budgets and bottom line. By combining approval workflows, supplier management, and pricing benchmarks all in one place, Tropic makes savings opportunities easy to find and act on. Visit tropicapp.io to learn how. Can you walk me through your VC software stack? So what are the tools that you're, you're using to do your job today? VCs
0: have a very different tech stack than a stof- software company, but there are some overlaps. So one of the things that we, we uh, you use is actually like, we want to pull in signals of companies. So like who the companies are, are they the right fit for the kind of companies we would invest in? And are there interesting signals that are out there on these companies that tell us, Hey, this is a good time to be building a relationship. And so we have data tools like Harmonic, PitchBook, uh, CrunchBase, as as sort of these like data tools to really inform that top of the funnel. And then we have like CRM, we actually use Salesforce. Everyone really, uh, well, a lot of people use Salesforce. It's not one that I would recommend necessarily, but we have it. Uh, and then from a marketing standpoint, we use HubSpot for all of our marketing automation. And then on the, Growth side, we actually do a lot from a, uh, with just different marketing technology to try to automate and streamline as much of the content creation and distribution as possible. And so uh, obviously, we have, like, we have website vendor, like we use WordPress, and then we have an outside vendor we, we work with. Uh, and then we have a podcast-related tool similar to Riverside uh, used here. We have a creative vendor called Superside. That's been great. And we have a transcript vendor called Rev.com. That's just super helpful for getting like high quality transcripts from any recordings for content. And then the final thing I just share is, is we do use like email automation and scheduling automation tools. So we invested in Calendly. We're big fans. Shout out Calendly. We use them internally. Yeah. Big shout out to them. And then we'll use email tools like a, you know, sales loft, yes, where Type of thing um, to track, like engagement for different campaigns or uh, emails to f- to founders,
1: that kind of thing. You you've got a really good MarCom stack. I got to give it to you. Uh,
0: I don't know half of them per myself, but our team has been great
1: <laughs> with building it out. Yeah, M- most VCs you ask them are like, I use I use Notion for notes, and then I uh, I use PitchBook, and that's like the end of the conversation. So I got to give it to you there. That was that was awesome, Kyle. So. Thank you so much for joining today. Kyle, where can people find you?
0: Uh, pretty easy to find. So I write a Substack newsletter myself called Growth Unhinged, exploring uh, the unexpected ways that the best growing, fastest growing startups are, uh, are growing. And uh, I also write a lot on LinkedIn. So Substack and LinkedIn are the best ways.
1: Yeah, check out Growth Unhinged. It's one of my favorite newsletters out there. I get a lot from it every week. I don't know how you find all these people who have these very tactical stories about how they grew their company. But every time I read one of them, I'm like, holy shit, I, I, I took away like two things to help grow mine. So thank That's you for awesome. your contributions.
0: I uh, That is my competitive advantage, right? Like being in a VC world, getting to see a lot of companies and how they're doing. Uh, but I also just for me, the content is actually like a flywheel, or I think of it as a flywheel where the more I write and like the bigger following I have, the more it attracts people that would love to feature their stories or like are more open to featuring their stories. So that helps me bring on really amazing guests. And then that content fuels even more growth, right? And it all works together. Uh, But yeah, I guess as a shout out for the people listening here is if you have a really interesting story around ways you've grown your business, ideally in an unconventional way, or if there were things that you tried and didn't work, um, send me a note and, uh, I love to feature those kinds of stories on, on the newsletter.
1: Yeah, please do it because it does uncover the tactics that you're like, you have that aha moment of I could actually implement this. It's not just talking about it in theory. It's, it's very, uh, it's, it's very dense on like stuff you can do day to day. Kyle, you're the man. Thanks for, ha- thanks for coming on. And, uh, I'm going to have you on again soon to talk about usage based pricing if you're cool with
0: it. Let's do it. All right. Thanks, CJ.
1: Roll the credits, producer Nancy. The Run the Numbers podcast is part of the Turpentine Network of podcasts. It is produced by Nancy Shu and edited by Justin Golden. Artwork made by some AI thing. Yelling an intro by Fat Joe. Don't forget to give us five stars. I really need this.